Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on the Book of Acts. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to be discussing Acts chapter 2, this time giving a bit of a theology of the Holy Spirit from the Old to New Covenants, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and the fellowship of the early Christians. As always, we invite you to sign up for our newsletter in Medias Race. This is a weekly newsletter that comes out every Tuesday, where you'll get a digest of all things Theopolis from our podcast to articles to videos, and you'll get each weekly video from our YouTube channel a week ahead of time. Also, if you sign up with the link in the show notes, we will send you a free ebook from Peter Lightheart. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation and are edified by it. And we hope that you enjoy this conversation and are sharpened and edified by it. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, and James B. John. As we continue our studies in the book of Acts, uh, we started that several weeks ago, and uh, last time we were looking at uh, Acts chapter 2, the event of Pentecost, and we were spent uh, most of our time looking at the backgrounds of Pentecost, the typologies of Pentecost that go back to Sinai and to Babel. There's a temple typology going on, the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise in the mockery that the apostles are full of new wine. We were seeing some allusions back to the early chapters of Samuel and Eli's mistaken idea that Hannah was full of wine and drunk, and uh, looking at other elements of the background of that sort. Uh, This week, we're going to focus on Peter's sermon to the Jews at Pentecost and the way that it, uh, the way that the Jews react to it. But I do want to make a couple of comments uh, about uh, a, disc- a topic we were discussing toward the end last time. Uh, I, I said that I had a way of thinking about or, or formulating the distinction between the Old Testament experience or work of the Spirit and the New Testament work of the Spirit. I didn't share that. And so um, there was a great deal of uh, just there's by popular demand, I feel like uh, I need to say something about that. Two things in the back of my mind, two things in the one, a uh, scriptural text, the other one, more systematic question. In John's gospel, Jesus uh, speaks of the gift of the spirit. And then John has a parenthetical comment. Jesus said this concerning the spirit because the spirit was not yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. Uh, and clearly John didn't believe that the spirit didn't exist prior to the exaltation and glorification of Jesus. Something else is going on. He he knows the scriptures. He obviously knows Genesis 1, and he knows the Spirit of God was involved in the creation. Uh, so it's not that the Spirit doesn't exist at all, but he can put it very starkly and say the Spirit is not yet until Jesus is glorified. And I think that might give us a clue. This is the systematic point of this systematic way of formulating it. It gives us a clue to the discontinuity between the uh, work of the Spirit in the Old and the New Covenant. I think we can put it almost in baldly factual terms. The Spirit does not come to Old Covenant saints with the resurrection power of Jesus because Jesus was not yet raised from the dead. The Spirit does not yet come as the Spirit of the glorified Jesus because Jesus is not yet glorified. In those senses, the Spirit is not yet until Jesus is glorified. And then when the Spirit does come as the Spirit of the risen and glorified Jesus, it comes with resurrection power. It comes with 
the power that joins the apostles to Jesus, who is the risen and exalted Lord and Christ, as Peter says in his Pentecost sermon. So those events have to take place. And, and I think John is implying this. Those events in the work of Jesus have to take place before the Spirit is in his fullness before the spirit operates as he does in the new covenant. I think that does have an effect on the way we experience the spirit as individuals, but I think much more as Alistair was saying last time, it has much more to do with the uh, spirit coming as the spirit of the resurrected and now glorified Christ in order to empower the church to combat death, to spread life, to bring new covenant realities to the nations. So that's the way I would, that's the way I would, um, Put it together based on John's gospel. The Spirit is not yet until Jesus is glorified. Now we have the Spirit as the Spirit of the as of the glorified Christ. Another way to say this is uh, this is a point that uh, Sinclair Ferguson makes, picking up from John Owen, who picked it up from some of the church fathers. I think Irenaeus says things like this: that the Spirit came on Jesus and was with Jesus during the years of his ministry. And there's a kind of humanization, if you will, of the Spirit. The Spirit becomes used to human life. When the Spirit comes to us at Pentecost, when the Spirit comes to the church at Pentecost, it's the Spirit that has been with Jesus through that ministry. It's the Spirit who's been with Jesus as he's cast out demons and done healings and preached in the power of the Spirit, as he's gone to the cross, as he's been raised from the dead. That Spirit who has moved with Jesus, the incarnate Son, through all those experiences now comes. That Spirit now comes in order to conform our lives to the life of the glorified and risen Christ. I think Ferguson uses that kind of language of the spirit becomes humanized is not exactly the word I'd want to use, but the spirit's work is, is what it is because Jesus work is what it is. And now the spirit, as it were, with the imprint of Jesus comes to the church. Thoughts and reactions to that. Filling that out a little, um, when we do have the gift of the spirit on certain occasions in the old Testament, the spirit is given as the spirit of some leader in particular so the spirit of Moses is given to the 70 elders or the spirit of Elijah is given to Elisha as you say there's that imprint of the person from whom the gift of the spirit is given and here I think what we're seeing is Christ's possession of the spirit is does not have the same limits as those um, Old Testament examples and Christ in the same way gives the Spirit without measure, as um, is spoken of in John chapter 3. There's not the same um, particular possession of the Spirit that's more bounded to a specific person's ministry. It's a more comprehensive gift of the Spirit. And for that reason, the Spirit of Christ is simply the Spirit. It's not just a specific measure of the Spirit. There is a boundless gift of the Spirit. And so as a result, what we're seeing is not just a specific donation of the Spirit in part, but the full donation of the Spirit in which we see the Spirit himself mm -hmm. revealed. Are you thinking about that boundlessness and without measuredness, um, Alistair, in terms of um, number of people? So are you thinking about that in terms of verse 17, onwards sons and daughters young men old men rather than sort of individual kings and and so forth not primarily i'm thinking of it in terms of christ's possession of the spirit not being just of a particular portion of the spirit rather it's the spirit total um christ is not um one who has some authority and power he has all authority and power 
And as a result, when he gives the spirit, he gives it without measure. Now, that, of course, I think has as a secondary corollary that the spirit's gift is um, far more comprehensive and Catholic in a way that it would not have been in the old covenant. Um, But I think that follows from the more fundamental point, which is that Christ's um, possession of the spirit as the son is not limited in the way that Moses' possession or Elijah's possession would have been. Well, let me uh, turn to the uh, the text we were going to look at, uh, we are going to look at in uh, Acts chapter 2. The event of Pentecost is described in the first 13 verses of the chapter, and then Peter stands up, begins to speak, and first of all, addresses the mockers and explains what this is. This is not that they uh, they aren't drunk, and he explains it in terms of the prophecy from Joel. And then beginning about verse 22, the it becomes a declaration of what God has done through Jesus. And that declaration of the uh, of the gospel of the events of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and exaltation is part of an accusatory speech. There's a a strong emphasis on the fact that these the hearers, those who are uh, Peter's audience, have put this this one to death. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You kneel to a cross by the hands of godless men. Verse twenty three. This Jesus whom you crucified in verse 36, the Father has made both Lord and Christ. It's a proclamation of the gospel, but it's obviously a proclamation of the gospel that has a very pointed application to his uh, immediate hearers who uh, were responsible for putting Jesus to death. Uh, and that, in that sense, uh, as we'll go on to in the next few chapters, we'll see that the other speeches that Peter makes and other apostles make have the same kind of effect. They're all, they all have this kind of accusatory dimension to them. And all these speeches are describing and are part of the uh, this growing crisis in Jerusalem that finally breaks out in uh, the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. But these speeches are part of the buildup as Peter accuses, some Jews react and repent, other Jews begin to persecute. Peter speaks again and the persecution and hostility intensifies. Peter speaks again and the hostility intensifies. Stephen speaks and then hostility uh, intensifies to the point of murder. And so the, uh, the Pentecost sermon is part of that building tension that we have in uh, early in, early in uh, the book of Acts. And these are the last days of uh, Israel, which is why Peter quotes from the prophet Joel, verse 17, in the last days, uh, these things are happening. It's not, as we all know here, but it needs to be said again, this is not about the end of the world. It's not that Peter uh, quotes a passage about the end of the world and then moves on to uh, his uh, current situation. Uh, this is all about what's happening to Israel at this time. It's the last days. And this question about judgment, or this uh, note about judgment and the resurrection, that's something surprising, I think, to people. We tend to think of the resurrection as being uh, well, and, po- and of course, it's true. It's, it's positive. It's helpful. It's a gospel. It's grace. It's transformation of our old flesh and a new flesh and a wonderful promise of first fruits of all creation. But in the book of Acts, the, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus establishes him as Lord and um, then also as judge. I mean, that if, that's even true when Paul gets to the uh, to Athens in the Areopagus and makes his speech. Uh, of course, his speech is cut off, but 
what he says is, you know, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So resurrection, ascension, the lordship of Jesus, uh, and the the threat or the uh, the promise of judgment is all through the book of Acts and something we need to need to hear. Yeah, the, and that's the way that the gospel or the the resurrection of Jesus is portrayed or characterized in these speeches early in Acts. It is new life in the world, but it's also the Father's vindication of His Son. And again, you have that contrast between the condemnation from the Jews and the Father's overturning of that condemnation. But resurrection is good news, depending on who's resurrected. You know, it can be a horror. You can have a horror movie with the, you know, Stalin is resurrected. That's a horror movie. And for the Jews who put Jesus to death, it's a terrifying thing that Jesus, the one whom they oppose and the one whom they crucified, is the Lord is the Lord's Christ, that he is in fact the Messiah. That's a terrifying prospect. Uh, and they can either uh, resist it or they can uh, repent. Yeah, it's uh, Peter's basically saying you thought you got rid of him, but he's back. It's it's like the uh, it's like the old twenty four series. You know, Jesus is like Jack Bauer. You know, you thought he was gone, but come back, and he's not happy. <laughs> no, Jack Bauer is like Jesus. Oh yeah, that <laughs> that's the way you should say. Some of that might need um, uh, some cultural translation to work work for us Brits. <laughs> Maybe just a quick comment about Peter's use of Joel. I see Joel very much in the backdrop of this whole chapter. So at the beginning of the text of Joel, there is this very bleak image. Israel is barren and the joy and the wine has dried up. But Joel holds out the hope of a new harvest and explicitly of new wine and of oil, which of course is, is mentioned in verse 13. And the way to participate in that for Joel is, is repentance. And Peter sort of takes that exact context and, and uses it here, I think. Israel is again on the verge of judgment. Foreign armies are on the horizon, I guess, in the form of the Romans in this case. But it's not escapable, that judgment. Blessing is an option too, dependent on how people respond. And so in verses 17 through to 21, Peter via Joel sets before Israel these two fates. One is blessing, it's to do with rain and fruitfulness and the spirit, and the other has to do with fire and judgment. And these, I think, these two fates depict, as I see it, um, incorporation into the church on one hand, into a spirit-filled body or the alternative to be left behind in this world which is under judgment and soon to be enveloped in fire. And that same image, I think, is, is picked up. We've been going through Hebrews in our church Bible studies recently, but in, in chapter 6 and verses 7 and 8, the writer has been exhorting that generation to um, push on, you know, not to fall in the wilderness. And he says, the land that has drunk the rain which often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, will receive a blessing from God. That's a future, I believe, in the spirit-soaked church. Um, but if that land bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned, which I see very much as the old generation and the destruction of 
the temple. And so Peter, I think, brings this all together and, and calls people to be saved um, at the end of this chapter, to be saved from the midst of that crooked generation um, and instead to be added to the church. Salvation in verse 21 is also the same rescue from that looming judgment. Is that, is that part of what you're saying, James? Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, just one, I think that's excellent, James. And we should remember that part of the what's uh, going on in Acts is, you know, remember at the beginning, the disciples asked, Lord, at this time we restore the kingdom of Israel. And Jesus really kind of dodged that question. It's not for you to know. And the apostles here are presenting judgment and witnessing about Jesus. But they're still not quite sure what's going to happen with Israel. There's certainly, as James mentioned, there's certainly the possibility of blessing. And if you read Acts 2, 3, and 4, and 5, you get the impression that after um, Pentecost, that the apostles are pretty bold. They're walking up to the temple. They're healing a beggar. And to their astonishment, I think, toward the end in Acts 7, Stephen is martyred. Paul begins ravaging the church. The apostles have to come to understand what God is doing with Israel, Uh, but yet their future is not yet determined, at least in their minds, until you come to the end of the book of Acts when Paul finally recognizes, uh, sorry, it's over. uh, I'm going to the Gentiles now. Part of the background that is again um, at play here is the ministry of John the Baptist. And at the beginning of Luke, John the Baptist declares that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And I think that captures something of the twofold aspect of what Christ is bringing. Christ is going to cast fire on earth and he wants for it to be kindled. This is going to be an event of division. It's not going to just be the matter of empowerment and blessing. There is going to be a sword that pierces people's souls. Um, and the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed as a result of this. He's a sign that's going to be spoken against. And now I think we're seeing that starting to come into effect. What was foretold by Simeon in the temple, um, what we see earlier on in the ministry of John the Baptist, this is starting to play out. Luke is very much cr- constructing a two-volume work, and the themes of the first are not just dropped as he goes into the second. Rather, we're seeing at the same juncture within this second, as it were, movement, we're seeing the themes from the first movement come to the surface again. Christ is going to lock down the great trees of the nation. Christ is going to be the one who baptizes this nation with fire. He's going to be the one who brings division. He's going to be the sign that's that's spoken against. And this, I believe, is what we're seeing in these chapters, um, the fulfillment of that. Yeah, another continuity you can see, and we noted this when we looked at chapter one also between Luke and Acts, is the uh, the way that Peter's reading and teaching from Scripture. James has highlighted some of the things going on in uh, the prophecy of Joel, but the, the premise of Peter's quotation of Joel is, we are now living in the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy, and this is what was necessary to happen, to use uh, Jesus' language back in Luke 24. This had to happen because this is God's script that he wrote in the Old Testament. Uh, and then when Peter goes to quote from this, these two Psalms, he quotes from Psalm 16, uh, beginning in verse Acts 2, verse 25 to 28, he's quoting from Psalm 16. Uh, and then he does a little reasoning about why this can't apply to David, must apply to somebody else other than David, a greater David, Jesus. 
he's reading the scriptures just as Jesus has taught him to read it, uh, that it was necessary that these things would happen and that the scriptures are about the Christ. He does the same thing again in verse 34 and 35, quotation from Psalm 110. He has this Christological reading of that psalm, again with the reasoning that David didn't, didn't ascend into heaven. This can't be about him. It must be about someone else. It's about Jesus as the Lord in Christ. So we're seeing that this alludes back to the beginning of Luke, as you said, Alistair. It's also in continuity with what Jesus was teaching at the end of Luke. We see the apostles taking up the hermeneutics, if you will, of Jesus and beginning to teach from the scriptures just as Jesus had taught them. Peter makes that explicit in Acts 3.24, where uh, he says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. The way that Jesus uses Psalm 16 here has raised a number of questions. It seems to be a violation of the text to many commentators. But when we think about it a bit more carefully, I think the argument that he's making is a very strong one. We can often read it as if, okay, David is making these statements. It can't really be about David. It must be about this other figure. Oh, wait, it fits the experience of Christ. But recognizing that Jesus is David, um, I think is important. That Jesus is the one who fulfills the words, ultimately, of Second Samuel 7, 12 following that when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. That promise is a promise of David being raised up through the one who descends from him. And the resurrection of David that's spoken of here, um, I mean, if it's just a matter of David being saved from a particular um, judgment or some opponent that's standing against him it seems rather anticlimactic even within the original context of the psalm um the statements being made about the grave well the grave's going to get david in the end anyway um why would this statement be such a grand one but the underlying theme is that david is never just um david the individual david is david the dynasty and he will descend to the grave and lie with his fathers but david the dynasty coming from his own body would be raised up and endure forever and jesus the son of david is david raised up as a dynasty and as a body and isaiah speaks of this um in the way that the davidic dynasty that has seemingly perished beyond all hope of return buried in the grave of exile would be raised up and would flourish a shoot from the stump of jesse i mean if you cut down David what are you left with just this stump of Jesse and now this branch is going to rise up it's going to bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him and those statements of Psalm 16 aren't really fulfilled in the deliverance of David in his own life David's speaking from a rescue from a far more terrible situation the um, death of his dynasty of all that his um, kingdom stands for he lies in the grave his dynasty is going to be raised up, and it is in fact raised up in Christ. In the body of Christ, we see the shoot coming from the stump of Jesse. And although the grave may swallow all these kingdoms and empires, in the resurrection of Christ, we have testimony to the endurance of the Davidic dynasty and the resurrection of David himself. Yeah. So, and that's behind that then would be the promise of uh, the Davidic covenant that his dynasty would be an eternal one. And also, as you were talking, I was put in mind of uh, what I uh, 
discovered working through kings, uh, you have repeated episodes where uh, the dynasty of David is threatened uh, with destruction, and then the Lord intervenes in some surprising way in order to raise it back to life. Uh, it happens uh, several key moments in the book of First and Second Kings. I think that's structuring the book, and the book, the theme of the book really is the the resurrection of David by the resurrection of his dynasty, but that's all implicit already in the Davidic covenant. The other quotation from the Psalms is from Psalm 110. Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Uh, Peter again draws uh, a Christological inference from that. Matthew Bates in his book, The Birth of the Trinity, talks about this as one of a number of Old Testament passages where you have a preview of kind of, of an inter-Trinitarian dialogue. That's the way that uh, uh, Jesus leaves uh, the his enemies in the temple. He quotes from this passage and he leaves them befuddled. How is the Christ both David's Lord and David's son? Uh, and uh, uh, Peter is referring to the same thing, but you have two different characters and Peter's already alluded to this. this. You have this Trinitarian activity in verse 33. The son is exalted to the right hand of God so that he can receive from the father the promise of the spirit which he pours out on us. So you have this inter-Trinitarian action and gift and conferral that, that uh, Peter's talking about. The exaltation of Jesus is the premise of Pentecost. The gift of the Spirit is the coronation gift of Jesus to his church. Once he's seated at the right hand of his Father, he receives the coronation gift of the Spirit from his Father, but he doesn't he doesn't hoard that coronation gift, but shares it out with his church. That Trinitarian, I'm I'm importing a term, but I think the the insight we have into the life of the Father, the Son, with their spirit uh, is is there in the text. And I would say it's a very natural connection then to um, look back to the baptism of Christ, where we also see a similar sort of event. Yes, right. Yeah, very good point. The whole chapter is an incredibly full-orbed theology. There is this sense in which God has exalted the Son, and then the Spirit is poured out and gives repentance and baptism and immediately following that it is baptism into the church so these people don't just go their separate ways they are added um, to the company of disciples three thousand souls are added and then immediately from verse 42 onwards there is the inclusion in fellowship and in teaching which is led by the apostles so there is this sort of full theology to the whole chapter I had a thought when you were talking about uh, Joel, James, when you uh, think about Joel running through the whole chapter, are you thinking that the incorporation into the fellowship of the disciples uh, and their breaking of bread and their participation together in the prayer, is that the, is that the harvest that, that Joel is prophesying about? Was that in your mind as you were describing Joel's role in the chapter? It, it wasn't in my mind, but you know, it, it should have been perhaps. <laughs> It, it fits with the direction you were direction you were going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That background of harvest it seems to me is very important because the feast of Pentecost is connected with harvest. Um, the feast of Pentecost is measured from the day of first fruits, and it's also something that has the same measurement as the um, year of jubilee. It's counted as seven sevens. It's also something that became associated with the event of Sinai. And in the story of Sinai, there is this declaration of the liberation of Israel from slavery. Um, and it's an anticipation of their entrance into the land. And the entrance into the land has a similar event. There is another 
event which corresponds, but it's no longer, I think, the event of the giving of the law, the declaration of their liberation from slavery. It's something more. It's an entrance into inheritance. And that's the event of of um, of the defeat of Jericho, where they're going around the city seven times. On the seventh day, there are the seven priests who blow the seven trumpets. It's a jubilee. And the blowing of the trumpets on the Day of Atonement marked the beginning of the, the jubilee year. And I think this... These two events together represent, on the one hand, a deliverance from slavery and then entrance into inheritance. If you're just delivered from slavery and left wandering in the wilderness, you're very vulnerable to entering into that state again. But God gives his people this anticipation of what will be a fuller liberation and establishment as a free people. And within the Feast of Pentecost in um, chapter 23 of Leviticus, the themes of inheritance are very important, as in the year of Jubilee. It's people returning to the inheritance. It's people being established in the inheritance. It's the insurance that every single person in the land, the poorest, the people who are the sojourners and the strangers, um, everyone who's dependent, that they all have some stake within this inheritance. And the fact that this chapter ends with this emphasis upon all these people sharing um, as one of the outcomes of the gift of the Spirit. I think it's part of the fulfillment of that, th- that theme. The Spirit is the one who is connected with the promised inheritance, the down payment of the full inheritance of the world to come. And what we're seeing in the fact that all the poor have enough, they're all provided for, it's that concern for gleaning that we have associated with the commandment for the Feast of Weeks that God has given his people an inheritance and the spirit is the common inheritance that we have. And that, I think, establishes part of the foundation for, I mean, this within this chapter in embryo is the entire theology of the church that you have unpacked within the epistles, the imagery, things like the lampstand or um, the way that the church is the temple or the way that the um, there's a new priesthood that's being established, a royal priesthood, or the way that the church has a prophetic ministry to perform, or the way in which the church is established as a new people, a uh, fulfillment of all the themes of Babel, it's the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, etc. But that theme of inheritance, there is one gift given to the church, the single gift of the Holy Spirit, but that one gift is refracted in a great many individual spiritual gifts where we all represent that one single inheritance and that unity of inheritance and the way in which the church is bound together in a common inheritance i think is ultimately a fulfillment of those themes of both the year of jubilee and of the day of pentecost and if jesus ministry in the book of Levit- in the book of luke began with a declaration of the year of the lord's favor the year of jubilee here i think the book of acts begins with a declaration of the meaning of the day of Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think the, the, these closing verses also, for Jeff at least, have been uh, a key to his uh, recent support for Bernie Sanders, which he... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> isn't Absolutely. that right, Jeff? You, you, oh, you're, you've become yeah. a, given up your, uh, your commitment to private property. <laughs> <laughs> if I got that right, Jeff, did I, did I get something distorted in that? Uh, in That's that right. Story? I'm all for enforced collectivism. That's what I'm all for. Yeah. 
It is interesting we don't see this sort of practice elsewhere within the early church. It seems that real estate in Jerusalem is going to <laughs> some precipitously drop in value in the gen- that generation. And so part of the prophetic me- message of the early church is to, uh, if they're declaring that Jerusalem is about to be destroyed, mm. you sell your property in Jerusalem and you liquidate your assets. And, and they're all going to be driven out uh, in a matter of weeks anyway. Acts 8, uh, everybody except the apostles are driven out. So it turns out to be a pretty wise thing to do. I also wondered whether some of this has to do with all the people that are there from out of town um, and the sharing and the commonality uh, is largely about that. But then again, in chapter 4, it says something of the same thing in verse 32. So that might not work. At any rate, you know, we can we can bash the, the socialism of um, the collectivists all we want, but there is this bias here toward sharing and toward commonality, which is the fruit of the spirit. Um, and that needs to be taken into account too often, you know, uh, socially or politically conservative Christians, when they read this, all we want to do is bash the, the collectivists because there's no enforcement here. But the fact that there's no enforcement means that this is coming spontaneously from people. Uh, and this is how the spirit works in times of crisis and trouble when people uh, share willingly and generously with one another. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you think about the background being worry about the the imminent, if they realize that they're going to be scattered imminently, they realize as they should from Jesus' sermon, uh, Jesus' elevate discourse that they're going, that Jerusalem is going to be under threat. Uh, instead of hoarding and bunkering down, uh, they're forming a community and a community where everyone is taken care of. And that is their response to looming catastrophe rather than hoarding. I think that's a really good point, Jeff, that uh, we don't want to lose the the force of this. They've received the common spirit and part of the expression of the common life that they have in the spirit is that they see their material goods as being there, not just for their own enjoyment or their own, you know, they're not, uh, they're not hoarding and protecting what they have. They see this bestowal of good things from God as a trust that they use for the good of their brothers who are now co-members in the community of the spirit. And the, uh, you, you, you can't separate the, the gift of the spirit, the common spirit that they have with this willingness to share their goods and their wealth with one another. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, should, I think we should say this too. There's a lot of Christians, and I've recently heard a sermon about this, uh, that will take this passage here and say, look, when all these things are happening in the church, then verse 47 says that they have favor with all the people. So if only we were this kind of church, then yeah. we would be acceptable like, you know, in the United States, let's say. And everybody knows that today and these days, the church doesn't have a very good reputation. And so if we were just act like this, everything would be okay. And there's a little bit of, of quixotic uh, hope there, I think, because shortly all of these people are going to be driven out of Jerusalem. And shortly the church is going to be ravaged by Paul and people are going to be in prison, tortured and killed. And, and that's not because they failed to do something or they were disobedient in some way. Uh, we have to remember that it was God's purpose to conform these people to the image of Christ, which means also his suffering and death, so that they are going to experience 
uh, as part of his body, the same thing that Jesus experienced. And that becomes the catalyst. That becomes the way in which the world is blessed. Um, so uh, there's there, there sometimes there are these really simplistic ways of looking at this passage and saying, well, if the church was only like this, then everything would be fine. Well, maybe, but if the church was like this, maybe we might all become martyrs, and then things would be fine uh, after a while. <laughs> Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.